Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Team Human is listener supported. We have more listeners than can fit into MetLife Stadium, but only about 300 of them support the show and get the ad-free version of the show on the Team Human team feed, access to our Discord server, free admission to live events, and more. Come to teamhuman.fm and click on support, and you will notice the difference in your experience of life. We are trying something new. On March 7th at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time, we're going to stream a Team Human Live through YouTube and LinkedIn, where you can all call in to ask questions and participate. Team Human supporters will get first dibs on call-in spots, but it will be open to the world. More on that soon. But for now, set aside March 7th at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. You're on Team Human, conscious intervention in the machine, a delightfully corrosive sensibility that breaks the distinctions between subject and object, giving and getting, work and play, upper and lower, highbrow and lowbrow. It's all just what it's becoming. As Popeye insisted, I am's what I am, and I am Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, my kind of scholar, film historian, writer, and legendary college professor, my Queens College Media Studies colleague, Noah Sika. We're still deep. We're intellectuals. We're smart. We're capable of reading texts. We're not naive spectators. We're not gullible. We know what these generic categories consist of, and that's what we like about them. We like that we understand them. We like that they're familiar to us. Noah is going to expose us to the brilliance and the most pop of cultural expressions and help us reclaim the wisdom of our own sensibilities. It's time to intervene on behalf of people and all living things. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human.
Noah Tsika is the kind of scholar I always imagined existed, but never quite discovered until I got to Queens College and was assigned to do a teaching observation of him. Well, it was, it, I just became a student, like <laughs> 20 minutes in there. I'm just taking notes. I'm back in college and thinking, man, I wish it had been like this. Noah Tsika is a professor of media studies at Queens College, which is part of City University of New York, where I teach. He's the author of Cinematic Independence, Constructing the Big Screen in Nigeria, Screening the Police, Film and Law Enforcement in the United States, Pink 2.0, Encoding Queer Cinema on the Internet, and other books all about film. He just published a crazy good little book called I'm Not There about the impressionist Bob Dylan biopic of the same name by Todd Haynes. It's a scholarly analysis of the film, but it's also one of those little guilty pleasure reads, kind of like those little books in the 33 and a third series of short books. Remember those about individual albums like Blue Moves or Diamond Dogs? I was supposed to do one about the Yes album, but never quite could get it together. And now the series is over. But he writes like that, you know, where it's just you and the author going deep into an experience that, that you've both lived well, Noah's official specialty is Nollywood cinema. No, do not spell correct that. Nollywood with an N for Nigeria. It's a genre of mostly low-budget movies. Sometimes they're even shot on camcorders, but they're distributed to millions in Nollywood movie theaters and DVDs. And people, like erudite people, kind of deride the whole genre as, as cheap, dumb pop stuff for the uneducated masses, but we on Team Human know that things that really resonate with people may be doing so for deeper reasons than meet the eye, and judgments to the contrary are usually kind of racist or at least elitist and definitely closed-minded and dumb. So, don't let today's political excuse for populism change your opinion of pop. For my money, it may just be as deep as things get. So here's my conversation with Noah Tsika. Let it stand as my version of what the best scholarly conversations actually sound like. So I've been interested in your work since I met you, because the first thing I heard you talking about live in person was um, Brokeback Mountain. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Which I looked at, I mean, because I'm a, just a pedestrian person who's, you know, I've had lots of different kinds of sex and stuff, but whatever. But I thought, oh, this is like a really good pro-gay movie because there's cowboys having sex and right. stuff. Yeah. So yay! Yeah. Yay! One for the team of, you know, people who like gay stuff. And then I was like, listen to your analysis, and it was like, Oh, this is like way more complex than. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a lot of queer identified people hate that movie. I'm not one of them. I have to say, right. I, I love, I still love Brokeback Mountain. Okay, I think good. It's a great melodrama. Right. But a lot of uh, queer identified people hated it because, yeah. because why? Because they felt it was ultimately normative, that it ultimately uh, suggested that male same sex eroticism is a masculinist pursuit they felt that the film is 
mired in some regressive ideas about human sexuality. I think it's a lot more interesting than that. I think it's right. a lot more complicated. So than they that. were upset that what? That basically that well, because it's cowboys having sex and they're all kind of straight looking, it means that being gay is okay. Yeah, it means that being gay is ultimately okay because you're a rough sexy mountain man and you can pass as straight and so you're you know capable of being accepted by a vast swath of america and that's presumably what happened when the film brokeback mountain became a box office hit right so that critics of, of the film were right. seeing it as oh, a film that people okay were embracing right. and that gave them pause because they were so accustomed to the idea of queer cinema as oppositional, as reflecting deeply minoritarian sentiments. Right. So then certain like gay activists were didn't like it because it made homosexuality too like conformist or something. Yeah, I think certain queer activists are always just inherently skeptical of anything that seems like a crossover hit. Right, like a crossover right. success. Anything that's widely embraced, embraced beyond the ambit of queer communities. Well, I can identify with that even like as a punk, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's like, wait a minute, yeah. like The Clash, now you're on Columbia Records, yep. and there's a major motion picture. Uh-oh, you're not punk anymore. Exactly. Well, and <laughs> you know, you explored this in Generation Like. Right. Right, the question of selling out. And, you know, it's still remarkable that few if any of the kids you talk to for generation like actually had any way of understanding the concept of selling out right you said what does it mean to sell out and so many of them said i no, right. i don't know all I don't the know. tickets are gone what does that mean yeah exactly <laughs> but you know that's an idea that in you know certain subcultures yeah. is still nurtured right the idea of selling out the fear rather of selling out is nurtured Right. It's always a balance. Like you want to sell out enough to keep yourself alive, but not so much that you're <laughs> not so much that you lose your claims to any yeah. oppositional identity. Yeah. Right. Cause right. somehow that's, yeah, I like oppositional identity. I don't know. I don't know. You still uh, have, you, do you like oppositional identity? I do. Yeah. yeah. I think I'm getting a little more mellow as I get older. I'm 40 now and I'm, uh, I'm trying to just be a little more accepting of different viewpoints, yeah. right? A little less polemical than I was when I was younger. Yeah. Right? Less argumentative, less. I'm a little, I'm always, all is love. Oh yeah. All are yeah. welcome, you know? <laughs> no, that's good. That's healthy. That's healthy. Yeah. Well, and you're teaching at a public college with yep. people with lots of different points of view. Exactly. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. Being here has really helped me to evolve in that way. Right. Yeah. To be more accommodating, more, uh, yeah. I mean, because we do have such a diverse student body i think that helps so though you know, especially opinions. in the current you know sort of middle east crisis yeah the fact that it's you know we've got i mean i i teach propaganda right, right. and i had yeah. a student for the final propaganda project they did <laughs> as their project they did a social media video campaign against bail reform Wow. It was like, yeah. you've done the crime, you do the time. You do the time. Don't let them out. You know, and it's yeah. all pictures of black people. And stuff. <laughs> don't let them out or they're going to attack you. And it's like, oh my God. And it's like, how do you, how do you hey, grade that? What right. do you think? Yeah. What do you say? How do you 
cultivated discussion about that. Right. In but in some year. ways, I think, you know, thank God, because at least we're not that strident form of kind of social justice extremism right. that we're seeing right. in the elite schools now. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, just that intolerance. You got to be tolerant here. Right. You can expect to see that level of diversity. Right. In the classroom here. Yeah. Which is great. It is. Know? It's fantastic. It's so energizing. Yeah. It is, and it forces a cooperation. There's an, a lack of, yeah. they, they can't be brittle. No, they can't be, they can't be. <laughs> Everything would fall apart. I mean, the entire campus would just fall apart. Yeah. And, you know, students, I think, are aware of the fact that they have to rein themselves into a certain degree in the classroom just to be able to engage in conversations with their peers. Yeah, I mean, right. to people who aren't here, it's sort of, it's sort of like teaching class on a New York subway. Yeah, it is. It is. That's a that's that's apt. Yeah, I agree. I yeah. agree with that. Yeah, that's that is true. So I'm interested in you, like how you. So you you would be mostly you're like a film studies scholar. Yeah, if, yeah. I mean, how does that happen? Were you like little watching Space Odyssey, going, "Mommy, I want you to think about this," or what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I grew up in Southern Maine, and I watched a lot of movies. And my parents are interested in movies. They definitely fostered a love of film. My father would take me to local video stores to rent VHS cassettes every week when I was a kid. That was my, you know, Friday afternoon mm -hmm. treat. Uh, rent a few movies for the weekend. But what were you I, renting, Godard or Mothra? Oh, <laughs> gosh, that's a great question. Um, Godard eventually, yeah, by high school, I really? would say, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. There was an amazing independent video store, uh, rental store in Portland, Maine, called Videoport, and they had an amazing selection of old films and new films, and so I went there to further my foreign film education. Right. And what, what was your, did you have like a, was there a gateway drug from yeah. regular movies to the weirder? There was, what yeah. Was the, the gateway drug really for everything was Pauline Kael. I started reading Pauline Kael's criticism when I was about 13. For people who don't know, she was the New Yorker. She was yep. like basically every week in the New Yorker, she would write critiques of movies that were these educational. I mean, she could be mean sometimes, but it was always you'd learn so much looking oh, yeah. at it. Yeah. Her, her voice as a writer was so alive, was so vibrant. Uh, you know, she leapt off the page and she's the reason I am still trying to write. Uh, oh, yeah. She's the reason I wanted to write in the first place. Mm. You know, I started reading her collection for keeps when I was 13 and yeah, the New Yorker hired her in 68 and she worked there until 1991, won the national book award in 1974 for deeper into movies. Her collections were such amazing guides for me as a kid in Maine. They gave me access to ideas about movies that I hadn't previously encountered. So yeah, she's, she's the reason for all of it really. Oh, that's cool. So it wasn't like, oh, I'm this, you know, young, gay, not understood boy in Maine, and I can see the, you know, the urban reality. It was, it was really appreciation of film itself it was that yeah i mean i was definitely a lonely gay kid in maine <laughs> yeah. yeah and movies helped me to feel less alone mm. uh less isolated more in touch with the world the wider right. world and i i just i felt so connected to kale's 
prose. So then she'd like write about some movies or what, and then you'd I would get seek them. them out. Yeah, I'd get them. Right. I'd watch them. You know, I would try to see them through her eyes. It wouldn't always work. I would go back to her reviews and think, what is she seeing that I'm not seeing? What is she? What does she know that I don't know? Right. Or how does she know as much as she knows? And of course, the answer is through a lifetime of learning. Right? right. She started writing when she was in her late. 40s for the New Yorker. When she published her landmark review of Bonnie and Clyde in 1967, she was close to 50. Mm. So she had had decades of study, decades of experience of the art form and of other proximate art forms. Um, and was I didn't she have educated? She went to Berkeley as an undergrad. I don't think she completed the degree, <laughs> but she thought about going on to law school and didn't and wrote pieces freelance for a number of years, worked as a seamstress, worked uh. as a nanny, uh, and then, you know, finally got that job at the New Yorker after publishing her book. I lost it at the movies in the mid sixties, which is an amazing collection of criticism and polemics. Yeah. Gosh. So then you started watching stuff and then how did you get like scholarly about it? You went to college and mm, I and, did. Yeah. yeah. I went to, well, first I went to Cornell and loved the environment there culturally, socially. It was fantastic. I really enjoyed it, but they didn't have and still don't have a film major. Right. And so I reluctantly transferred to Dartmouth uh. because Dartmouth did have an amazing film major, uh, a relatively big yeah. film department. So I went there to major in film and television studies. So I was mentored by a number of amazing film historians there at Dartmouth and continued my education there, then went immediately to NYU to get my PhD in cinema studies. And is that when you got into all Nigerian cinema and all yeah. that? Yeah, it was NYU because I studied with Mancha Juara, who is considered rightly the father of African film studies, took courses with him. And he said, look, just move to Dakar, move to Senegal while you're ABD, while you're finishing your dissertation. Just oh, wow. go there and work on it, even though the dissertation is not on African film. Just do it. And I did it. And while I was living in West Africa, I started researching Nollywood. And that became this second track within film studies for me. I mean, I will always be interested in Hollywood. I'll always be interested in U.S. film history. But I'm also committed to the study of African cinema and more specifically Nollywood. Right. And then, you know, and I was lucky enough because I've sat in a couple of your classes, you know, officially it was originally like as a server, but yeah. then as like student. And it was weird watching these, these Nollywood movies that are almost like some of them like shot almost in like home video. Yeah, absolutely. And then they seem really cheeky and yeah. cheap, but then you start watching and going, oh, wait a minute. There's like, Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. 
Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Old Nollywood lore being woven into this thing there. Belief in magic and these different scales of like, for me, it was like about retribution. Who gets punished and who doesn't in these movies is way different it is us. <laughs> yeah yep 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 uh so many old nollywood films so films made on vhs cassette right straight to video films produced in the early 1990s in southern nigeria are steeped in the occult and you know the moral economies of the occult come into play in so many of them and as you say yeah questions of justice questions of retribution they're so wild they're so much fun in my opinion i love them as genre films i mean when i was living in dakar I was going to festival screenings and I was going to museum screenings. You know, Dakar is the birthplace of Ousmane Samben, the father of African cinema, mm. is a place where the art of film is appreciated. There are a lot of film snobs in Senegal, right? There's a culture of appreciation for the moving image and for a certain conception of cinema in Senegal. So when I was living there, I was enjoying all of that. But I was also hearing complaints. I was hearing people say, oh, that fucking Nollywood, that's just it's the scourge of the continent. They were right. saying that Nollywood to them represented a regression, that it was the anti-Semban, anti-art, crass, right. commercial. And I thought, oh, God, I've got to see more of this. So it made me develop an appetite for Nollywood. So many people in Senegal were complaining about Nollywood that I knew I had my next project, yeah. my next undertaking. So I started to watch Nollywood movies and I just got hooked. I got completely addicted and I'm still addicted to Nollywood movies as hundreds of millions of people around the world are. Yeah, because there's this other thing that happens and it was it was weird for me because I've always been a lowbrow is highbrow kind of guy. Yeah, me like, too. I like, you know, Beavis and Butthead and Ren and Stimpy and, yep. and you know, oh, yeah. all these things as like, oh no, these are deep. Yep. And then maybe because I got more educated lately and, you know, I started to get, okay, I can watch the good Criterion movies and all. Sure, And then yeah. it was, it was kind of sitting in your class made me think well wait a minute maybe lowbrow is the opposite of what i've been thinking in other words that lowbrow in some ways or the most popular cultural expression of something is in some ways the most refined because yeah. it's been through all of these filters like i've been watching uh the viking tv series lately oh great yeah and i know their shit on a certain level yeah but yeah and they're not accurate to the real Viking history, no, but no. in some ways they are the most accurate to what are the themes and the, the what are the mythic underpinnings of Viking lore yes. that have survived and we still relate to now. So it's like, you know, Christ, poor Christ, he's still in the Bible because we still worship him here in this culture and all that. But Thor yeah. has made it to pop culture through all these additional filters. Thor, in some ways, is a more advanced god. Right. right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because he was lost as a something to get worshipped. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. I'm in complete agreement with you about that. Yeah. And that is 
central to aspects of Nigerian culture, this idea of lowbrow is highbrow, this refusal to relegate anything to the category of lowbrow. Well, because then you're relegating yourself to it. I exactly. mean, there's, yep. it's like, no, yep. we are poor. We are, we are poor. We are uneducated. We are common, but yeah. we are deep. But we're deep. We're still deep. We're intellectuals. We're smart. We're capable of reading texts. We're not naive spectators. Right. We're not gullible. We know what these generic categories consist of. And that's what we like about them. We like that we understand them. We like that they're familiar to us. I go back to that great quote from Dennis Potter, who said that he doesn't make the mistake that high culture mongers make of assuming that because people like cheap art, that their emotions are cheap too. And right. Right. I mean, that's Nollywood movies, even at their quote unquote worst, are remarkable reflections of certain societal conflicts and cultural practices that are themselves incredibly deep, rich, meaningful and contentious. And do you ever get pushback of being a uh, a white American scholar that only oh, you're not allowed to study this stuff? Yeah, sure. Um, that comes up now and again and i don't have a good answer for that i mean people will continue to resist the idea of someone from the united states from a non-african background enjoying genuinely enjoying nollywood movies and i continue to say that i i simply do i simply love them i am as addicted to Nollywood movies as to Hollywood movies. And so I study both. Yeah. You know, I go back and forth and, you know, I sometimes combine the two. I look at the role of Hollywood in Nigeria. You know, my last book looked at the history of Hollywood studios attempting to infiltrate right. the Nigerian market, to develop the Nigerian market, to construct movie theaters and oversee them, influence them. Yeah. yeah. It was interesting. I mean, the most interesting aspect of that to me is the uh, the hand-painted Nigerian posters of American Oh, movies. yeah. Yeah. Those, the the most famous ones come from Ghana. Oh, they do, that, yeah. that practice started in Ghana, right. and there's a lot of crossover between Nigeria and Ghana um, right. in terms of video production and the cultures of consumption that we associate with video production. Yeah, those posters are amazing. Posters of uh, Hollywood blockbusters. I mean, my favorite poster is probably the one of Rambo. Um, <laughs> even there's so many other ones. I mean, they're all just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. They're really great. And it's fun. And it's it's just so celebratory. And uh, it's yeah. localized yep. on a certain localized, level. Localized, definitely. They're so idiosyncratic and yeah, exuberant. Yeah. Really? That's the thing. It's yeah. oh, I mean, I'm. I feel like in this world, especially the, the the how cynical everyone is, we are starved for exuberance. We are. We sure are. You know, some people love Bollywood more. because they're just like throwing, yeah, throwing, throwing colored dust at oh, each other. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> you know, breaking into songs. You know, the song and dance routines, the vibrancy of those alone. Yeah. And it's like we're embarrassed to do that here or something. It's, yeah, just, yeah. it's really, it's kind of sad. It is.
so then the latest. All right. Yeah. So I hadn't seen. I mean, luckily your book, uh, I'm not there, gave me the excuse to see that movie for the first time. Oh, good. Which I hadn't. You seen. hadn't seen it. Yeah. Well, you're and not alone. It was not a hit. It blew my fucking mind. Because <laughs> yeah. it was. So here's the thing. So I'm watching this movie. It was so hard to get my bearings. Yeah. It's yeah. like, did this happen? Did it not? So right. so I mean, for, I guess describe just what it for people who've never don't know what this is. Sure. Yeah. It's a film that's ostensibly about Bob Dylan, but it doesn't announce that other than through the opening credits when it says, based on the music and many lives of Bob yeah. Dylan, right? There's, there's one credit, there's, uh, you know, one line that refers to Bob Dylan, but it features six different performers, each playing a version of Bob Dylan. And they're separated by age, by race, by gender, right? So a diverse cast, a relatively diverse cast, six individuals portraying aspects of this legendary cultural figure and not a single one goes by the name Bob Dylan. Each right. has a different name. The names have varying degrees of relevance to like the, the Dylan persona. Kid, Woody Guthrie. Or Woody Guthrie, <laughs> yeah, yeah, who and was one of Dylan's inspirations. Right. Or Arthur right. Rambo. Yeah, Rambo is one. And Jude Quinn, Jack Rollins, Robbie Clark, they all have different names. And so it's it's a film that plays with the category of the biopic, the generic category of biographical motion pictures. But it's still very much about Bob yeah. Dylan. I mean, anyone who knows anything about Bob Dylan will be able to recognize aspects of Dylan's life and career in the film. Right. And this is, I mean, so people don't know, this is Todd Haynes, who Todd did this, Haynes. who hopefully is most remembered for his Karen, Karen Carpenter story, yes, which was played yes. with Barbie dolls, of yeah. which this movie is the closest movie in his arsenal or, or repertoire to yeah. this one. Yeah, it's you know? really so close. It's a, but, and that was a kind of a biopic of the Karen Carpenter story. Yeah. And he acted it out with Barbie dolls. With Barbie dolls and other Barbie knockoffs. Yeah. yeah. Each portraying, you know, aspects of Karen Carpenter. Right. And, and it was her. all, I'm sure it was all illegal that, you know, and IP and all yep. these problems. Yep. He, and this one is kind of has some IP legal issues too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. That's what interested me the most, you know, Superstar, the Karen Carpenter story right. is this legendary film from 1987 that Todd Haynes made without anyone's permission, right? It sort of started as a project at Bard where he was doing his MFA, and then he transformed it into this amazing commentary on the toxicity of fame, on the pressures placed on female artists like Karen Carpenter. So it explores her struggles with anorexia nervosa, but it also uses unlicensed Carpenter songs mm -hmm. to advance the narrative and to comment on certain aspects of the story. And so actually Mattel was the first <laughs> copyright holder to threaten to sue. Mattel said, look, you use Barbie and we didn't give you permission to use Barbie. So we're going to sue you. And then Richard Carpenter and A&M records actually succeeded in bringing a suit against Todd Haynes and, you know, getting the film pulled from 
theatrical distribution. So it has circulated in bootleg forms ever since. Well, and right? at those band film festivals where band I first saw it. Band film festivals, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you can't legally, you can't licitly distribute it or exhibit right. it. You can't commercially exhibit it anywhere under the terms of that injunction from Richard Carpenter and AM Records. But when Todd Haynes decided to make this movie about Bob Dylan or decided that he wanted to make a movie about Bob Dylan, he said to himself, I don't want to make that mistake again. I can't risk, right. you know, putting years of my life into this project only to have it well, because this one's like lawyers. a real movie with yeah. actors and sets and yeah, exactly. It was a you know twenty million dollar production, and so before he even wrote the script, he contacted Dylan's people yeah. and said, "Look, is this in the realm of possibility?" He sent Dylan a proposal, and Dylan said, "Yeah, sure." <laughs> Which was a shock to yeah. everyone. I mean, he's a cantankerous sort of dude. Absolutely. Oh, oh, among the most litigious yeah. of all recording artists. I mean, he is—he's legendarily litigious. I'll say that. So this was a, a surprise, a pleasant surprise for Todd Haynes, especially since in 1998, David Bowie said, I don't want to be involved in your work. Uh, Haynes had wanted to make a film essentially about David yeah. Bowie, Velvet Goldmine. And, you know, Bowie refused to license his music to the production. So Haynes had to scramble and rewrite a lot of it and come up with alternatives to Bowie. So, yeah. you know, he ended up licensing some Roxy music pieces for the film to sort of stand in for bowie's music yeah. um but he he said you know i either go all the way with this or i don't make it at all i either use bob dylan's music with permission right i either license you know a dozen or more of these songs or i just don't make this movie at all but then this movie ends up being like this for me like a fever dream yeah. really strange and I like look at a scene in it and go, wait a minute, that's the cover of that album. Then the scene is gone. Right, right? exactly. So he throws out stuff at you without taking credit, without yeah. calling attention. It's like if yeah. you noticed it, cool. If you didn't, it's gone. Exactly. Right? Who does yeah. that? You know, who does that? I mean, the the boldness of Todd Haynes in this film to rely on so many unacknowledged quotations. Right. Right. He is pulling from so many different sources, and if you don't know that he's doing that, then you. Might might think he's just making it all up, right? That everything is an invention of Todd Haynes, when in fact he is pulling together all of these different sources. He is citing old movies. He is citing old songs. He's playing those old songs back because he had the rights to the Dylan mm. music. It's all there, yeah. So unacknowledged quotations form part of the fabric of the film and you're right they fly by so quickly right you can easily miss so many of them yeah the visual references too. oh the reproductions I mean, of album covers yeah. that you mentioned are amazing yeah so many and then Dylan you start to covers. realize probably everything in that movie is something you yeah. know i'm catching 10 yeah. percent of them maybe pretty much lucky. yeah so <laughs> I, I tried to identify as much as possible in the book you know to just provide some kind of guide to the illusions some guide to the citations the lifts yeah right the steals <laughs> yeah but the joy of it for me i mean and what what sort of team humany about it for me is that it suggests a 
different relationship to history. Yeah, exactly. Not this factual chronology, right. but it's a swirl of of themes that we actively derive meaning from. It's Definitely. like so the the reception. So that's the thing that Haynes is doing. The re- the person receiving it in the audience is an active participant in this movie. That's right. Yep. Yep. And I write in the book that Haynes really respects the audience. He has talked about that over the years. How he, as a filmmaker, as a writer-director, wants to respect you, respect the audience, allow the audience to come to conclusions about his work. So he gives you just enough. He doesn't tell you exactly how to interpret the material. He doesn't, and I'm not there, provide the sources for his citations. He lets you figure that out. Right. If you recognize that Marcus Carl Franklin, the 13 year old who plays Woody Guthrie, a version of Bob Dylan in the film, is directly quoting the 1957 Ilya Kazan film, A Face in the Crowd. Great. If you know that, great. If you don't, fine. Right. Right. I'm not going to tell you exactly where these quotations are coming from. I'm not even going to tell you that they're quotations. You have to figure that out. Right. And even you if have you to make don't, it's as if you're trusted that you get it on a subconscious, right. like yeah. an Finnegan's wake sort yes, of a way. Exactly. Yep. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Because presumably you have, if only through cultural osmosis, been exposed to these precedents. We're living in Dylan's America. Exactly. So it's like Bob Dylan as media environment yeah. rather yep. than as human. Yep. Yeah, the media ecologies of of Dylan. Yeah. You know, the tributaries that have fed his art are also feeding this film. And so there are direct references to some of Dylan's most famous influences, like Woody Guthrie. But there are less direct and even hypothetical references to you know, sources that might have influenced him, sources that conceivably influenced him, that arguably influenced him like a face in the crowd. Yeah. Right. I mean, Dylan is notoriously elusive. He is someone whose tale should be trusted, but who as a teller is hard to trust. Right. He's well, like Bowie, actually. Like Bowie. Right. What can you take at face value? reading the man's interviews, you know, reading transcripts of his conversations. What can you actually accept at face value? What actually happened? What's true? What is just a ruse? Uh, what is a lie he's telling in the moment? What is something that he's going to contradict in the next interview? You don't know. You can't predict, right? Perhaps Dylan himself doesn't know how he feels about it any one of a number of historical precedents that he's mentioning in his work. Right. And that's all and I'm not there. As you say, it's nonlinear. It's exploratory. It covers a lot of ground, but it doesn't feel like a dissertation. It doesn't feel like a duty to sit through the film. It's so right. I, back to this notion of exuberance. It's an exuberant film. The exuberant comes from the energy with which Haynes approached the project. 
the vitality that the performers bring to it. I mean, Kate Blanchett as Jude Quinn, Kate Blanchett playing probably the most iconic version of Bob Dylan, the most recognizable version right. of Bob Dylan, the version that we associate with the Pennebaker film, Don't Look Back from 1967, covering the 1965 tour, Dylan's tour of the UK. Those images that are reproduced in the Cape Blanchett right. sections are pretty recognizable around the world. Right. Is that when he met, when he met John Lennon and did all yeah. that? <laughs> yeah. He met Lennon a little later. I saw a crazy movie once where they're like eat the in document the, in yeah. the back of a limo and yep. they've just done smack. Exactly. And it's yeah. like Dylan wasn't used to smack and he's all nauseous. Yep. And John Lennon's like giving him a hard time. Yeah, John Lennon's <laughs> fine. John Lennon, you know, he's serene. He's he's uh has his wits about him and Dylan is just, you know, reeling and yeah. presumably ready to puke. But yeah, that that happened in 1966 yeah. during Dylan and the Hawks' tour of Europe, which is a, a tour that Dylan filmed for a project that he was doing for ABC for television. But that was never really finished, although he managed to copyright it in 1971. It's a, a movie called Eat the Document yeah. that Haynes takes some footage from in I'm Not There. The thing about about the I'm Not There movie that and and your treatment of it that gives me such hope is this moment that we're in culturally. For me, it's really dark. And it's yeah. part of the reason why it's so awful is this. And I blame digital for it, although you can't blame digital for everything. I like to. I blame digital for it. This Everybody wants a definition. Yes. What happened when and then? Who's to blame? Who's not? Who's <laughs> right. more culturally oppressed? Who's less? Who gets to talk? Yeah. Who doesn't? What's exactly your intersection? More than my intersection, less than my intersection. And I'm not there and and Todd Haynes and say uh, to some extent even David Lynch does this. Right. Is like saying, "Yo, it's all ambivalent. It's all yeah. The, the the joy of being human is in opening these questions that are unanswerable and juxtapositions of things that human beings can do something exactly. if we stay open yeah. in the liminal spaces between stuff. What do you, are you gay or you're straight? I don't fucking care. Right. Are you straight acting gay or gay acting straight? Whatever. I'm this human in between these lines. Exactly. Todd gets that, right? Yeah. Lynch gets that in his own way. Dylan seems to have gotten that. You seem to get this. The, the Nollywood cinema seems to get this. Yeah. You know, this liminal place. Absolutely. It's so fun to be there. But it so sure is. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say that, you know, ambivalence is a condition of modernity, but you remind me that it's the condition of humanity. Right. Right. Ambivalence, ambiguity. There's this great lyric in Dylan's song, Desolation Row. Everybody's singing, which side are you on? Right. This demand that you take sides. Identify yourself. Identify yourself for me, for my edification, for my identity. Tell me exactly where you stand so that I can predict your movements. And this film rejects that. Right as arguably Dylan's career rejects that. Well, because it's dehumanizing. If you want Absolutely. to predict my movements, you're saying yeah. you want to dehumanize me and turn me into a fucking robot. Yeah, fuck you. Right. Fuck you. And Dylan knew how to say that. He, he really knew did. how to say that. He wasn't afraid <laughs> to say that. 
right? He wasn't afraid to say that at 21 in the 60s. He's not afraid to say it now. Todd Haynes isn't afraid to say it, although he's an incredibly kind man. Yeah. You know, yeah. Todd Haynes is really laid back. Uh, he's not an adversarial personality, but his work is challenging. It challenges this notion of fixity that I think is for some reason that I can't quite understand being embraced and promoted in the name of progressivism today. And that's not the progressivism I remember from my youth. Uh, That's not the queer theory that I learned in college and grad school, right? This, this embrace of fixity, this embrace of identitarian approaches to anything and everything, the fluidity that's, examined and I'm not there, I think remains really inspiring. Yeah, it's funny, you know, I, I remember did this talk for a conference in 1999. Uh, I think it was 99. It was called Disinfo, right? It was for Richard Metzger, this conference. And I, I had to do like the opening little keynote for it. And I was like, it was for the counterculture. And I said, all right, we won. Now what? Now what? We won. If you accept that you won, that the counterculture is about to become the overculture, then are we going to bring forward the flexibility and fluidity or are you all going to try to lock down? If you lock it down, you're no better than the fucking Um, Bush people you just replaced. Exactly. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. That's the fear, right? That's a perennial concern. Yeah. Absolutely. It's my problem with revolution, right? It goes in a circle. Yeah. I want renaissance is what I always talk about. Renaissance, well, because it implies an ongoing process. It implies a process that can't be completed, right? A process that might be quashed, that might be supplanted, but that in theory can persist indefinitely as this flowering of artistic expression, of open conversation, of debate, Mm. right? It's a really productive word. Yeah. I'm excited about your work, especially the trajectory, because as I look at, I mean, this is my judgment or, of your trajectory, my perception of it, is that it went from, you know, like really more academic, scholarly to this book. I'm not there, which who's the publisher that's university? It says University of Texas Press, but it yeah. looks to me like an or book, you right. know, or, yeah. or books or yep. a little verso book. It's so, I mean, everyone should first see the fucking movie, but get this little book. I'm not there. And it's like, this is not like film theory hard to read. No. It's just, you. it's this nice little book yeah. that makes you go, this is just cool. It's like, remember those books that they did about, what were they called about those, the records? It was this. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like great albums. And they had these little books. They were called 2020s or, or 33 and a 30, third. Yeah. 33 and a third. I think they yeah. were called. And it was like of a great album. And it was just a way yes. to get into like the yes album or, right. you know, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And this is a way to get into a movie that it's an invitation. And it's like, it's so, it is not self-indulgent. It is not decadent to, to embrace this core human experience especially right now it feels it is political on a certain level yeah yeah i think so definitely and i keep returning to this film because i find it so inspiring because the ideas that haynes expresses through it are still so relevant um i remember seeing it for the first time when it came out and thinking 
okay, this is, this is how I want to live. This is how I want to think. Mm. This is how I want to proceed, certainly intellectually. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, I mean, you know, I came here to Queens, we're in a social justice program. And at, at when I started here, I started to discard all of my kind of work in the arts as superfluous to the struggle, to oh, the mission, yeah, to the, no. you know, if we're not getting them in the streets. And now I'm realizing as I look at the brittleness of American society, our, our incapacity of dealing with crisis, yeah. really, oh, no, the arts and teaching people about ambiguity and wiggle room and confusion is necessary training to be able to hold and bear witness <laughs> to what's happening. Yeah. Definitely. This is essential work. This is, it is not this is not for when we happen to have time. No, no, no. This right. is no, no. And you know, in fact, there's an amazing moment in the film that alludes to the question of whether Bob Dylan can be classified as reactionary, as regressive, as even right wing in some ways. And the answer that the film implies is you can't possibly know. You can't possibly know what his politics are or that they can ever be pinned down. And so this idea of someone like Bob Dylan as cancelable because of a reference that he once made to the Civil War is one that we should interrogate, right? We shouldn't accept it at face value that Bob Dylan has examined aspects of American history that today seem deeply unseemly, but that doesn't mean he endorses yeah. the racism of the past. That doesn't mean that he himself is racist. That doesn't mean that his career represents the right wing in any meaningful sense. You know, we I, don't have access to yeah. another person's subjectivity. I never want to cancel someone based on their work. You know, their piss Christ or Maplethorpe in the butt, whatever you're doing. No. You know, I'll cancel you if you if you Harvey Weinstein humans sure, in your right. life. You yeah. know, all right, get out of my fucking face. But I don't want to know you. Right. But but yeah. the work. This is the place. This is the dream. This is the go, go where you got to go, buddy. You know? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting that the two strands intersect in the case of I'm Not There because right. Haynes himself was quote unquote canceled in the early 1990s. And he was, you know, classified alongside Serrano and Maplethorpe because he made films that were disruptively queer. <laughs> like like poison uh he right. makes poison in 1991 mm. and you know he had received some public funding some public arts oh. funding for his work and so of course congressional republicans right. this is spoke out against that <laughs> and said that you know he was using taxpayer money to promote deviance God. sexual and otherwise and so he was described as a figure not unlike Maplethorpe in the early mm -hmm. 1990s. But he himself stood by his work and said what you just said, that, you know, the, the work is the work. You don't know who I am in my private life, what I do. Watch the film and let me know what you think about the film. Don't tell me who I am morally, right? Don't yeah. define my identity for me. But then who distributes I'm not there? 
the Weinstein company, <laughs> right? Harvey yeah. Weinstein was heavily involved in the distribution and marketing of I'm Not There. And Ugh. after the scandal really erupted in 2017, the Weinstein company went bankrupt, of course. The scandal-induced bankruptcy auction was held. And so the the rights to the distribution of I'm Not There were were kind of in flux mm. for a little while there. So, yeah, the, the film itself embodies uh, a lot of different contentious issues. Yeah. So, so maybe, maybe in closing, I'm interested, where, where do you see yourself going next? And what do you, if you do, I mean, I always do this because the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. I mean, kind of where do you see your work playing a role in, if, if it does, in helping us avert just utter human catastrophe? <laughs> a light question with which to end, a softball question, if you will. Um, uh, well, the teaching is one. I mean, just the yeah, fact that you're teaching yeah. two or 300 people a, a semester yep. is helping humans. You you know, know? Well, it, it helps me personally. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had a really rough time a couple of weeks ago, and I so looked forward to just being in the classroom. Mm. It really helps. Uh, we have some amazing students here, and just the environment here has always been... I mean, good for me. I mean, I just, I love it here. But uh, apart from that, I'll say I'm working on two books right now. One is a history of the idea of forever war, of endless war, perpetual war, mm. and the relationship between that idea and Hollywood history. So how we can examine the development of Hollywood as an industry in relation to actual wars that are seemingly interminable. So how do we further examine the relationship between Hollywood and the US military? How did individual films articulate the notion of war as endless? Well, as like part of the human condition. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that is a topic mm. that I hope people will find endlessly relevant right and my other book project is on the relationship between african natural resources and screen media huh. and it really focuses on nigerian resources coal and tin and oil and films hollywood films african films from films from all around the world and you know the argument is rooted in this idea that there's no standing outside of that reliance on African natural resources. All of our devices rely on them. So how do we deal with that? How do we make sense of that? How do we, we can't deny that. Especially all the crazy new supposedly renewable things. It's like, no, you're nope. getting rare earth metals. That's not renewable. Yep, absolutely not. Molybdenum's not, not renewable. No, nope, nope. you're, <laughs> you're still extracting from the African continent. There's no way around that. So, you know, what do we do with that knowledge? We took Where from their we people. From we extracted that. the people from the continent. The people and, and now stuff. still, I mean, you know, we can talk about decarbonization here in the United States, but that's presumably going to be dependent on the ongoing extraction of resources from Africa. Right. Right. The ongoing use of Africa as a dumping ground. I mean, Ghana and the, the e-waste piles there. 
it's yeah another depressing story yeah but, but, but another I'm, perpetual yeah absolutely yep yep that's the other theme right these issues don't go away we might think that they do we might think that we've solved them but right they we just insulate don't. ourselves from them better right we do yeah we we we, we <laughs> dumbwaiter effect yeah <laughs> they're yeah. down in the basement don't exactly. think about them yeah. <laughs> out of sight out of mind right yeah oh. yeah yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for your work. Thanks for making me proud of the fact that I'm a film lover rather than embarrassed oh, of it. Thank you. Know? you. Yeah, it's no. great. Don't don't be ashamed. No. No, and for loving film. the shitty ones, the supposedly like, shitty yeah. ones, because you can go deep. Mothra and Gamera are deep. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. <laughs> no, they all are. I mean, you can you can find allegory just yeah. about anywhere. Yeah. No. Beautiful. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Douglas. Thanks. And thank you for being on Team Human. Our guest today was Noah Tsika, the author of a whole bunch of titles on the joys and power of Nigerian cinema, as well as the new book, I'm Not There, about the Bob Dylan biopic. You can find links to all of his stuff on the show in the you can find links to all of his stuff in the show notes to this episode of Team Human. Team Human was produced by Joshua Chaplin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.